0: Was the voice of Elizabeth Elliott. If you're not familiar with her story, I'd encourage you to Google her name. When you have some spare time, find a book that she's written or a book about her life and, and uh, get to know her story. Uh, she writes and she's spoken publicly. She said, when I stood by my shortwave radio in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956 and heard that my husband Jim was missing, you can imagine that my response was not terribly spiritual. I was saying, uh, but Lord you're with me all the time, right? She quoted that passage from Isaiah, but she's saying in, in, in her heart and out loud, Lord, you're with me all the time. Um, what I want is Jim. I want my husband. We had been married 27 months after waiting five and a half years. And five days later after that call, I, I knew that Jim was dead. And God's presence with me was not Jim's presence. That was a terrible fact, God's presence didn't change the terrible fact that I was a widow. And I expected to be a widow until I died because I thought it was a miracle. I got married the first time. I couldn't imagine that I would ever get married a second time, let alone a third. God's presence did not change the fact of my widowhood. Jim's absence thrust me, forced me, and hurried me to God, my hope and my only refuge. And then she says this, And I learned in that experience, in that suffering, I learned who God is in a way I could never have known otherwise. And so I can say to you, she writes, that suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. God is God. I can't improve on that, so that's our summary sentence for the day. She wrote it just for me. Um, Suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. God is God. Today, we conclude our series in the book of Job, like John said, and our series title has been, When Life Hurts. In week one, we learned about lament. We saw lament expressed. God allowed profound suffering in Job's life, and Job does what any one of us would have done. He, he laments. And we learned that lament is God's gift to us in suffering. Lament helps us worship God in our pain, Lament helps us take our first steps toward hope and healing, and lament actually gives voice to our deepest pain to God, and he wants that pain to be voiced in raw, honest ways to him. Lament is God's gift to us. It's how we worship him in pain. Uh, Last week, in week two, we saw limitations exposed. Job and several of his friends argue for most of the book. If you've read it a couple times now, you're exhausted by their conversation, Um, and they argue about why Job is suffering, but their limitations to comprehend what is going on are all exposed, just like us. They, we talk and we talk and we talk and we try to figure it out, but at the end of the day, we're left with the sound of, of silence. We just, we don't know. This week, we're going to see longings experienced. Throughout the narrative, Job longs for a face-to-face sit down with God. He just wants his questions answered. He wants God to speak. Well, Job's longings are are realized and experienced. God shows up, and Job is going to learn exactly what Elizabeth Elliot said, that suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which we learn an indispensable truth, that God is God and I am not. Now, before God shows up and speaks directly with Job, we encounter one more character in the book of Job with a speaking role. His name is Elihu. Uh, Last week, we met Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar kind of the, the worthless counselors that Ron introduced us to last week. What you need to know is there are two important differences between Elihu and Job's three friends. You need to know there are differences because what Elihu's going to say sounds an awful lot like what they've been saying for almost 30 chapters. But. They're very, very different from each other. First, just two differences. First, Elihu actually does speak on behalf of God. Elihu is sent to Job as a prophet, and prophets uh, bring with them God's message for God's people. That's what Elihu is. What he's going to do, his mission is to prepare Job to hear directly from, from, from God. Like he's got to, um, it's the air war before the ground war. He's got to soften the defenses of Job's heart and just get him ready uh, to hear directly from God. And here's what he says in chapter 36, verse 2, Elihu says, hey, Job, bear with me a little and I will show you for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. He's speaking on behalf of God. The three other guys that we met last week, they believed they were speaking on behalf of God. But as the story unfolds, what do we discover? They actually were not. God even speaks to Eliphaz and says to to him in chapter 42 verse 7, hey Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Elihu speaks for God his friends, the friend, Job's three friends, did not. That should kind of clue us in when we encounter suffering or friend encounter suffering. Often we run to Job and we're like, man, I need to find a passage, a paragraph, some scripture to encourage them and to help navigate them through suffering. Most of the book of Job is the voice of the three friends, but who did they not speak for? God. So which passage don't you want to give to yourself or your friend in suffering? Anything where they're talking, right? So just, just keep that in mind. They did not speak for God. That's the first thing. The second difference is this. The friends said that Job was suffering because he had sinned, which we learned as we worked through the book is not true. Um, Guys, the prosperity gospel is not true because that's exactly what the prosperity gospel, gospel says to us. If you're a good person, you do right, you please God, you'll be happy, you'll be wealthy, you won't, you won't encounter hardship, life will be awesome. Just, just be a good Christian, have lots of faith. It'll be a storybook life. But if you're bad, if you don't have faith, if you disobey, life will be miserable. Job pushes back hard on that, but so does life, right? We look around, good people suffer and wicked people prosper all the time. Elihu, on the other hand, says, not that Job's suffering because he sinned, but that Job has sinned because he is suffering. Or we could say it this way, in his suffering, Job is crossing lines in what he is saying about God. Elihu in verse uh, chapter thirty-two, verse two, Elihu it says he burned with anger at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. That's what suffering does to us. It turns us in our, on ourselves. We turn inward. Uh, we defend ourselves. Uh, we blame God. Uh, we focus on me. We 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 I'm innocent. Why is this happening to me? It's God's fault. And we're oriented on ourselves and our circumstances rather than God. So prophetically, what Elihu is going to do as a friend is he's going to come to Job and help Job begin to reorient his heart off of his circumstances, off of himself, and back onto the God who created him. Elihu wasn't just angry with Job. He was angry at Job's three friends. Chapter 32, verse 3, it says... He's angry at them because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Guys, as friends, they didn't offer any hope, uh, no help. We would say it this way. It was just really gospel deficient. There There was no hope of rescue or redemption. All they were doing were heaping guilt and shame on Job. Sad, sad story. So Elihu is going to give four short speeches. Really, he's just going to make four big points. We'll look at the wave tops before God shows up. And during his talk, Job and his three friends, who have been so full of words, fall silent. They got nothing to say. So here's Elihu's point number one. Point number one, God speaks in our suffering. Job had accused God of being far away. He'd accused God of actually closing his ears to Job's cry in the suffering. Job had accused God of not responding to him, although he was crying out for desperate help. And Elihu shows up, chapter 33, verse 13, and he asks Job a very important question. He said, Job... Why do you contend against God saying that he will answer none of your words? Why are you asking that question? I need to tell you something. And in the very next verse, he says this, for God speaks in one way and in two. God speaks in multiple ways. So what's the problem? Though man does not perceive it. God was speaking all along. God was present. God is not distant in the pain. He's there and he's speaking. The problem is our perception The problem was Job's perception, but God speaks, God speaks prophetically, prophetically. He was doing so through Elihu's words. That was true for Job, and it's true for us. God still speaks prophetically in his word, and because As God's kids, we have more than his word. We have the spirit who who is alive within us and indwells us. What the spirit does is the spirit takes the word of God and implants it into the hearts of God's people like Elihu so that through God's people, God the father can speak prophetically to his kids in all seasons, but especially in seasons of suffering. Chapter 32, verse eight says it this way, but it is the spirit, God's spirit in man breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. God speaks prophetically to us through the Spirit who brings his word to our hearts. That's just one more reason why you as a follower of Jesus desperately need to stay in community with other followers of Jesus. It's one of the ways that the Father speaks to your heart through the Spirit, through his word for your good. God speaks prophetically. God speaks through our conscience or our conviction Chapter 33, verse 16 says, Then God opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. In doing this, God keeps back our soul from the pit, bad place to go, and he keeps our lives from perishing by the sword. Guys, guys, it's our perception God is not silent. He spoke to Job through Elihu and through his conscience, his conviction, and he's speaking to you, even those of you this morning who are skeptics and cynics and are disbelieving and are doubting, you know God is still speaking. You know he's speaking to you through your conscience, through your convictions. We suppress it, but God speaks. God speaks not only prophetically and through our conscience or conviction, but he also speaks through suffering. I like the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, we can rest contentedly in our sins. We do, we can. We're very comfortable there, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience or through our conviction, but he shouts in our pain. It It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which we are awakened to God through which our ears are open to him. Elihu said it this way, chapter 33, verse 19. Job, listen, we are rebuked with pain on our beds and with continual strife in our bones. For this very reason, pain and strife serve a needed purpose in our lives because they make us acutely aware of our need for help. God speaks through my suffering for my good. Chapter 33, verse 29 says, Behold, God does all these things. He does these things twice, three times. He does them over and over again with a man or a woman to bring back his soul from the pit that he might be lighted with the light of life. God uses affliction in our lives as a mercy to us, as a gift to us, to awaken us, to reorient our hearts on him and to uh, to keep us from the pit. And to give us the light of life rather than the darkness of sin and rebellion. So Elihu says, hey, those who receive this gift, seeing in it God's life-giving purposes, here's what they learn to say. Chapter 33, verse 28. God has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look back upon the light. But how did he do it? Through my affliction. He, that's, what, that's what Elihu's saying. He does this through our affliction. Uh, Christopher Ashe says it this way. He says, I may think that because I am suffering... God is not speaking to me, but He is. And my sufferings may actually be His voice. And His purpose in my sufferings is gracious. It is that I may be rescued from death and restored to life. So, point number one from Elihu God speaks for our good in our suffering. Number two, God is just in our suffering. Elihu looks at Job in the eyes and says, Job, I need to tell you something. Chapter 34, verse 12. Job, of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And he asks a couple questions of Job. Hey, by the way, who gave God charge over all the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? Did you, Job? Did you, Zophar, that? any of you guys? No. He alone is God. And here's what it looks like to be God. Verse 14, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath to call his life-giving spirit back, all people would die together and man would return to dust. What Elihu is saying to Job is this, because he alone is God, he is just in giving my life, he is just or right in affecting my life, however he wills, and he is just and right in taking my life at any time. He is just in all these things at all times. And so to charge God with injustice is to challenge his position as God, is to question his deity. But in his suffering, just like us, that's exactly what Job is doing. He's questioning God's goodness. He's questioning God's justice. I'm suffering, how can he be good? I'm suffering... I didn't do anything to deserve this. How can this be just? God's mistaken. He's doing it wrong. But Elihu looks at Job in the eyes again, chapter 34, verse 35, and says, Job, man, you're speaking without knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. Your words are with... Out insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us. That's a confident em- emphasis. He's like making his point and just kind of, he's, he's smacking whatever he can to, to emphasize the truth of what he's saying. But what Elihu says is he's just multiplying his untrue words against God. God is just in our suffering. Point number three, God does not owe me anything in my suffering. He owes me nothing. Job asks this question, 35 verse 3, hey Elihu, what advantage do I have? I mean, how am I better off than if I had sinned? Look at me, like I have followed God all these years. I've gone to church, I've obeyed, um, I've been happy, I've given money, I've served people, and he's treating me like this? What a waste. Well, I would have been better off if I rejected God or the idea of God or if I'd just become a skeptic or a cynic and taken rule over my own life and did, just did me, did whatever I wanted to do. I, what a waste. Elihu looks back at Job and he says, Job, man, you can't put God in your debt. Nor can you damage God through your sin. Look at this in chapter 35, verse 6. Elihu says, Job, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against God? The answer being... Nothing. And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Again, the answer, nothing. Verse 7, if you are righteous, what do you give to God? Nothing. Or what does he receive from your hand that he doesn't already have? Nothing. And Elihu says to Job, Job, The problem is you're asking the wrong question. Your question implies that God is indebted to you and he is just absolutely not in any way indebted to you in your suffering. Look at this in chapter 35, verse nine. Elihu says, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. Everybody cries out. They call for help though because of the arm of the mighty, but nobody actually asks, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Nobody's asking for God himself. Everybody's just asking for something better or a change of circumstances or, or, or whatever, but not actually God himself. But that question, where is God my maker who gives songs in my night, that's actually the right question, but nobody asks. We ask, why God? Why me, God? Um, why bother, God? What's the use? The right question is, where are you, God? Elihu continues, verse 12, there they cry out, all these questions, why, why me, Why bother? But God does not answer those questions because of the pride of evil men. Verse 13, surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. He does not regard those questions. He is not obligated to answer any of those questions. James says the same thing this way. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble cry that God will answer is this. Where are you, God? Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? But Job has not learned to ask that question in that way. And to be honest, most of us, our hearts struggle to ask that question. We ask all the other questions. And Elihu says it this way, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. God does not owe me anything in my suffering. The fourth point Elihu makes is God's ways are incomprehensible, but he delivers the afflicted by their affliction. God's ways are incomprehensible, but God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Look, we got to start here. Suffering always reveals our heart. You want to know the real you? Go through a season of suffering. It's all going to come to the surface. That's what Elihu's saying, chapter 36, verse 8. He says, Job... If people are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then God declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. It just all comes to the surface and God begins to point it out for us. And in pointing it out, verse 10, God opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. So this is where Job is at. He's suffering and all of this stuff in his heart is coming to the surface And we're learning what Elihu's going to say is, Job, God's ways are incomprehensible, especially in your suffering. Chapter 36, verse 22, Elihu says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? His ways are incomprehensible. What Elihu's saying is, nobody can say to God that you have done wrong. Chapter 37, verse 5. Eli, who says, "God thunders wondrously with His voice. He does great things that we can not comprehend." He goes on, same chapter, verse twenty-three: "The Almighty, we cannot find Him." Let those words sink in for a minute. We can't find Him he is great in power justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate therefore men fear him he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit guys we can't find this god but the beauty of the gospel is that he finds us he pursues and he finds and when he finds us here's the question for job and for us what does he do what is he going to do Well, here's what he does. Chapter 36, verse 15. This pursuing God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Boy, that'll give us a different perspective on the suffering that we are presently enduring. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. And in the affliction, he opens our ears by the adversity. It's the adversity that opens our ears and opens our eyes to hear God and to see him for who he really is. Like C.S. Lewis said, affliction is God's megaphone to rouse an otherwise deaf John Ransom. Or like Elizabeth Elliot said, I learned in my experience of suffering who God is in a way that I could never have known otherwise. So Elihu finishes his four points. Job is silent. Job's friends are silent. Their limitations have been further exposed. Their arguments have been laid bare. So now what? Now what? What will God do? Man, I've got to believe as I was reading this this week that Job has got to be thinking something like, God's going to crush me now. Like, he just sent Elihu to just get me ready, and that's the last I'm going to hear, and he's going to snuff my life out. I mean, all through the conversation, Job has expressed a deep longing to see God. That's all he wants. I just want my day in court. I want to be able to talk face-to-face with God, and he deserves, I deserve an answer from him. He owes it to me. I think that confidence has escaped Job's heart now. I really don't think he would say it in the same way anymore. I really think after what he's heard from Elihu, he's probably convinced further God's not gonna show up and it's probably a better thing that he doesn't. But God shows up. God shows up, chapter 38, verse one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I like this, that God answers out of a whirlwind. I like it because it seems to reinforce probably what Job was thinking at the time. Like, this is really not going to go well for me. It seems foreboding, doesn't it? Like God is answering out of a, he shows up in a typhoon. Not the jokey kind of typhoons we get around here, but like a real one, a really bad storm. God shows up in a destructive storm. Seems really foreboding. Like God is absolutely going to crush Job. But he shows up in the storm. And he's introduced with his personal name, the Lord. It doesn't feel personal in English, but in the original, it's just his name, Yahweh. It's his intimate covenant name with his family. It's the same way he introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. It's the way he introduces himself to people who are in his family. That's how he chooses to introduce himself. And the text says that he answered Job. Not that he spoke to Job or directed Job or lectured Job, but that he, he answered Job. That indicates an intent, a desire to converse, to talk with, not to talk to. Not one way, but two way. God did not show up to knife hand and destroy Job. God showed up to sit down and interact with his son. That's what he did. I like the way that Tim Keller says it. He says, God has not come to judge or crush Job, but rather to reach out to him in grace. And man, guys, that is really good news for us because let's just, a moment of clarity, moment of honest. Uh, We've read Job a couple of times now. We've been here for three weeks. Every single one of us have said words exactly like what Job has said. This week, we probably thought thoughts just like Job thought or just like he expressed. If you've not said them out loud, I know the thoughts, if you're like me and you probably are, are bouncing around questioning God's goodness, questioning God's uh, justice, asking the why me question, honestly asking the why bother question. But God doesn't show up to judge or crush Job. He reaches out to him in grace. And guys, that is really good news for us this morning. God reaches out to us through Jesus in grace. God still speaks out of the whirlwind, We can't get past this fact. I think what this is communicating to us, even though God is personal and he shows up to converse with Job, he is infinite and he is an overwhelming being and he is unapproachable. You can't get near this God in the same way that you can't walk into the eye of a storm. You just physically can't do it. Apart from God making a way to get to him and coming to us himself, you're not going to God. He's unapproachable. He's high and above us. He's powerful. He's, not, he's, he's personal but he's infinite at the same time. That's what makes him God. He owes Job nothing. Job owes him everything. Chapter 38, verse one to three says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's you, Job, isn't it? How about this? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. We see the same pattern in chapter four. You've already read the book, so you know this. God gives two talks to Job. One starts here in 38. One starts in chapter 40. They both start the same way, basically this way. Job, you've been questioning me. You've made it clear you want a conversation, so here I am. Uh, like, get dressed for it, because here we go. It's, he's not being, he's not belittling Job. He's it's not even really sarcasm. He's just saying, look, you're going to get what you wanted. So get yourself ready. But here's how the conversation's going to go. You've been asking all the questions. I'm going to ask the questions now. Okay. So I'm going to ask the questions and ask questions. He does. Have you read chapter 38? Tons of questions. Um, and the first question sets the tone. And these questions aren't just for Job. They're for us today too. And here's the first one, Job, where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So let's not allow these questions to go by just for Job. Uh, I'm going to read m- many of them. Let's actually answer together. Feel free to say whatever you want at the end of the sentence. I've got my answers down. Uh, you can speak your answers out. But uh, let's have this conversation along with Job and God for our good. So here we go. Where were you when I laid the the foundation of the earth. Yeah, I didn't exist. I I don't know about you. Some of you are way older than I am, but I didn't exist. No names, no names, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there when this happened. All right, let's hit the questions. Job, who determined its measurements? I mean, surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? Uh, Job, just imagine he's kind of getting a little more sober in spirit, just a little quieter, like, uh, nope, not me. Or verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Ocean, thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Did you do that, Job? Not me. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Did you do that, Job? No, I didn't do that either. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Yeah, I didn't even know those. Like, I haven't been there. Haven't been either of those places. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? No, and I don't really want to. Have you com- comprehended the expanse of the earth? No, God, I, I haven't done that. I can't. My mind would be blown if I tried. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take, to, take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? Yeah, I got no clue. I got no clue. You know, though, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Yeah, God, I know I implied that, but... I was wrong. Like I, I didn't mean to say it that way. My days aren't great, haven't been around. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? No, God, I I haven't seen those either. And what is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? I don't know. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is on the desert in which there is no man in order to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Did you do that, Job? Yeah, I didn't do that either. Can you lift up your voice, verse 34, to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Yeah, that would be really cool, but I can't do that. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, that would be cooler than the water thing, but I can't do that either. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Can you do that, Job? No, that's not me either. Do you know, here's my favorite question, chapter 39, verse 1, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? (laughs) I got no clue, and I don't really care to know either. I'm not even thinking about mountain goats and giving birth. No idea. How about this one in verse 9? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your barn? You know up north where we have, it's on the expressway and smaller roads, you have the signs with the wild boar? The agu. I've seen one in my three and a half years here. I want to try that, like in the same with a wild ox. So you're coming home with me. You're going to serve me. You're going to be the family pet in my yard. That's what God's asking. Uh, will he serve you? Will he spend the night in your front yard? And no way. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? No, I don't do either of those things either. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? No. And again, no. So all of these questions and all of their answers, the same answer for everyone, no, God, not me, God, can't be me. Um, They're setting Job and us up for this very important moment with God, this ultimate question and ultimate answer, And here it is, chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Son, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, that's you, Job. You're the one arguing. You are the one contending. You answer this question. And I think in this moment for Job, all of these prior questions are having their intended effect. They're settling into his soul with a weight that he cannot escape. Because here's his answer, chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, ah, God, I am of really, 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 really small account. What can I even say to you? In fact, I'm just gonna go ahead and cover my mouth with my hand so that I don't say anything I don't mean to say because I've spoken once, I've learned my lesson and I'm not going to answer twice. I will proceed no further. And so the question from God to Job and from God to us is, when your heart is fault-finding the Almighty, when you are questioning his justice and his goodness and his love, will you contend with the Almighty? And the weight of all of those questions that we just answered should avalanche off a mountaintop into your heart with one massive snowball, one cumulative answer that says, no, I can't. I am in no position to fault find with the Almighty But God keeps pressing. He doesn't stop there. And that's good because Job needs him to keep pressing because that's not enough for Job. One conversation is not enough. Answering those questions one time is not enough. How do we know? Because it's not enough for me. And I haven't even suffered like Job suffered. My heart needs God to press today and tomorrow and the next day. Like I need the Father to keep pressing in with these questions. And he does. We need him to. Because why? Because we are prone to contend with God. We have a heart just like Job's. We've done it already today. We're going to do it tomorrow. And so he presses in chapter 40, um, verse 8, same cycle, a little bit different. He says, Job, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And Job says, yes, that, that is actually what I've been doing, God, and that is what I tend to do. And so God continues, verse 9, do you have an arm like God? Uh, Arm in the Bible represents strength all the time. So God's just asking Job, are you strong like me? Do you have God like strength? Do you have God like strength? And can you thunder with a voice like mine? No, no, I can't do either of those things, God. But then God says, let's pretend you can. Like, let's just pretend. Let's pretend you've got those two things going. Verse ten. I want you to dress yourself like me. Put on my clothes. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. You don't think I exist. You don't think I'm just. You don't think I'm good. Uh, You think you know better than I do. Go. Put my clothes on. Be be me. Uh, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Be me for a day. Like do some God things. And then, verse 14, I will, I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And I've got to imagine, by this time, Job's like, he's got the game. He knows what's going on. He understands what his father's doing. He doesn't even pretend to put these clothes on. He understands that his heart is just being laid bare, and he's shaking his head. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend, God. Like I, I'm, I'm done pretending. I'm not going to do that. And God says to him, but I I thought that's what you wanted. That's what you've been asking for through this whole conversation. That's what you've been implying this whole conversation, that you know better, Job, that you know better than me, that, that, that you would order your life in a better way than I have ordered your life, that you would rule the universe with greater justice and greater mercy, that people in this place would not be suffering if you were God. And so he keeps pressing in. But he says to Job, that's that's probably too much for you, right? So let's aim at something a little smaller, something a little more attainable for you. Don't be God for a day. How about this? Just subdue one of the two monstrous creatures that I've created in my created order, okay? Let me introduce you to the behemoth and the leviathan. Like, I know you can't be God for a day. Just take your bare hands and go wrestle one of these two guys into submission. And then I'll answer your questions for you. Did you read chapters 40 and 41 this week? Behemoth gets an honorable mention. Leviathan's like the rock star that gets a whole chapter. A behemoth... Neither name is a proper name for an animal, okay? They're just like categorical names. Behemoth is some kind of a super beast. Like as you read through his description in chapter 40, he appears to be some kind of powerful river and land animal whose bones are tubes of bronze and limbs like bars of iron. Whatever he is, he's powerful and he's untamable. That's what God is saying. Leviathan, his name literally means the twisted animal, right? Whatever category that, like the the category of twisted animals, Uh, There are 34 verses to describe this terrible creature. says things like, around his teeth is terror, and out of his mouth go flaming torches and sparks leap forth. Now, let me just kind of summarize this briefly for you. Historically, there have been three approaches, three interpretive approaches uh, to these animals. The first approach is, hey, they're real animals. I've heard people say, see, proof of dinosaurs. Like, that's a T-Rex, and this, uh, I don't know about that, like, We'll just leave that one alone. More commonly, interpreters will say, well, behemoth is a hippopotamus and leviathan is a crocodile. But I don't know about you. Like I read especially the leviathan description. I'm like, I watched a lot of old boy from Australia. What's his name? Yeah. Never introduced to a crocodile like what I'm reading about right here. Like, uh, I don't know. But let's roll with it. Let's say they are real animals that Job knows. What God is communicating to him is these beasts are untamable. They are powerful. They are destructive and and they're wild. I dare you go try to assert your authority over either one of them. Another interpretive approach would be that they were storybook creatures from stories of the gods and the goddesses that would have been well known in the ancient Near East. And God is invoking their imagery that Job would have been familiar with to illustrate a point for him. And what would that point be? Job... You are crazy to presume that you can contend with me because you can't even contend with either one of these beasts. And oh, by the way, I spoke them into existence. That would be the point. The third approach would just be that some believe these animals are just kind of, they're just symbols. They're just symbols, um, symbols even of the Satan that we've met in the story, symbols of death, symbols of tragedy, symbols of the brokenness in the world. In other words, God would be saying to Job something like, um, your life has been wrecked by uh, pain and darkness and death and destruction. And what have you learned? You, you, you have no control over any of these things. And symbolically, that's what these animals are representing to, to Job. They're untamable, they're wild, and they're exposing Job's mortality and his limit. He's not God. He can't control the brokenness in his world. And so, a behemoth, God says, Hey, Job, chapter 40, verse 24, can you take one of those guys by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? and Job's like uh no and then he says of leviathan my favorite he says uh, verse 5 will you play with him as with a bird or will this is my favorite line right here will you put him on a leash for your girl's daddy can i get one of those and take like you surely you'd do that job right it, no that's not possible Verse 8 says, Job, if you lay your hands on him again, remember that battle because you will not do it again. He, what God's saying is, he's not saying it's going to go so badly that you won't do it again. He's saying it's going to go so badly you'll be destroyed and killed. You won't be able to do it again. This is all leading to the final question. And God asks this to Job. Then Job, if you can't stand and contend with Leviathan, if you can't stand and contend with the behemoth, then who then is he who can stand before me? And then Job answered the Lord and said, chapter 42, verse 1, God, I know, I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I get it. You are God. I am not. Um, I can't stand before you. I can't improve on what you're doing. I don't know better. And I'm choosing now to trust you. And in verse 3, he says to God, God, you asked me, who is this that hide counsel without knowledge? And I'm confessing now, it was me. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. It was me, and I was wrong. And you said to me, hear, and I will speak, and I will question you and make it known to me. And I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, because of my experiences and suffering, now I know you. I see you. My eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in in dust and ashes. For the first time, Job now is seeing God clearly. And so for the first time, Job is knowing life, guys. Without looking to God first, we do not see the truth about ourselves or our circumstances. And it's like yesterday, I saw a video of this kid in the class whose principal, he's colorblind. And his principal gives him a pair of glasses that allow him to see color for the first time in his life. And he puts them on. He looks around the room He looks around the room, he takes him off, and he weeps. He just cries. He's seen the world for the true and real way it is for the very first time, and all he can do is cry. That's what's happening to Job now. For the first time, he sees God, and so he sees himself, and he sees his circumstances, and he sees that God is working mercifully in this. So what happened to Job? Tim Keller says it this way, the experience of suffering Leads Job to the place where he loves and trusts him simply because he is God. Job's life is going to be restored, but that hasn't happened yet. Job is in a good place now simply because he sees God for who he is, and it is it has given light to every area of his life. Keller says that Job becomes a person of enormous strength and joy, who does not need favorable circumstances in order to stand up straight spiritually. That's what you want. And that's what Job became through the affliction. Job never sees the big picture. He only sees God, but that's exactly what Job needed to see. And that's exactly why God allows affliction. And that's exactly what we need I like how Chesterton says it. He says, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of men. It is enough to have God and to have all of his riddles. He's way up here and I'm way down here than to have the cheap solutions offered by men who think they know better. James will write in his letter, James chapter 5, he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job's painful story turns into one that just becomes a beautiful display for God's compassion and mercy. Just like Elizabeth Elliot said, Job would also say, I learned in my painful experiences who God is in a way I could never have known otherwise. Isn't that kind of awakening to us? Because would we ever choose pain or suffering for ourselves? No. And so we would never know God in a way that we only know him through these difficult seasons of life. And in his mercy, he allows us these these seasons so that we can know him. And so we can say that suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth, that God is God and I am not. So Job's story doesn't end there. God tells the three friends to ask Job to offer sacrifices and prayer on their behalf. They actually all obey. They humble their hearts. They do obey Um, God accepts Job's prayer, and they're forgiven, and they're fully accepted back in. Um, God restores Job. We're not going to read all the numbers, but God actually gives Job twice of what he had, two times as much as what he had before. And at the end of the book, you read that Job lives a long, full life. He dies an old man surrounded by sons, daughters, and grandchildren, and it's a happy ending but it's just a shadow of a story or with a happier ending. And that happier story is the story of Jesus who is the true and better Job. Listen, Job was powerless to place even Leviathan on a leash, but in power Jesus has all things, death, darkness, evil on a leash that he is sovereign over and it is a short leash. That's Jesus, the true and better Job. Job had no idea what was in store for him. He was swept up into suffering. Jesus knew exactly what was in store for him. He wasn't swept up into anything. Jesus stepped up into the suffering that he would endure. Job's suffering was for his own redemption. Jesus' suffering was for my redemption and yours. Job offered an imperfect sacrifice for his friends. It was a sacrifice that would need to be repeated daily again and again and again because they'd sin and rebel and sin and rebel. Jesus is the true and better mediator. Jesus, the perfect mediator, offered a perfect sacrifice, not for his friends, but for his enemies, once for all time so that we could become family. And those who repent and believe like Job and his friends are fully accepted by the Father, not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus, the perfect son, has done in your place. And you are deeply loved by the Father, not because you are lovable, but Jesus, the perfect son, is loved fully by the Father, and you are loved in him. Because the only innocent sufferer suffered in our place, tasting death so we would know life. Jesus is the true and better Job. Let's pray and thank God for the beauty of the gospel. Father, we don't pretend to understand Give us the humility to be content with the riddles of God, just knowing that we have your presence. Guys, God, open our eyes, open our ears. Um, Help us to ask the one question that matters. Where are you? We need the God who gives us songs in the night. I don't need my circumstances better. I don't need a better life. I don't need to be in charge, and I don't know better. I just need you. God, help us to ask that question. Thank you for your mercy, You could come to us in a whirlwind and just absolutely wipe us out, but in Jesus, the unapproachable God, you become approachable, you pursue us, and you sit down with us as sons and daughters, and you love us and you accept us in Christ. Father, we owe everything to you. You owe us nothing, but you give us grace and mercy in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the story of Job. Thank you that it's true and it matters just as much today as it did so many years ago. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.